You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. One of the biggest tips I give to writers out there looking to get their shows produced is to submit their plays to festivals and contests and all sorts of different theaters all over the country. I call it a process of serving the tennis ball. Get your play out in the world to as many places as possible. You never know who's going to hit that tennis ball back to you. One of the great tools that can help you do this is a website called PlaySubmissionHelper.com. PlaySubmissionHelper.com. It does exactly what the domain name says. It gives you a list of all the different places that you can submit your play, deadlines, information on how to submit, etc. It's the one place on the web where all of this information is listed in one area. So if you're a writer trying to get your show produced, check out PlaySubmissionHelper.com today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I've missed all of you. We were away on a bit of a summer vacation, but we are back now, and uh, I'm so excited to bring you podcast version 2.0. We've got some very exciting guests in store for you and a few other surprises as well, so stay tuned to this podcast station. And do tell your theater-loving friends about us. But now on to today's guests. He is is not hyperbole one of the industry's greatest librettists. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. John Wyden. Welcome, John. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Ken. John is a three-time Tony nominee, and two of the musicals he wrote the book for went on to win Best Musical. He's written the book for Pacific Overtures, Assassin's Contact, and many others. Won a bunch of Emmys as the writer for Sesame Street. It's true. And I think you win the prize for having one of the most interesting educational backgrounds of any (laughs) book writer on the planet. Degree in history, then a law degree, is this true? Yeah, I, I, um, I did not come to this profession honestly or honorably. I was, uh, I'd studied Eastern European, uh, rather East Asian studies in college. And this was the very late 60s, early 70s. So there was a, a period of time passed between college and when I could then pursue the rest of my life. I taught school in Harlem for four years and uh, then went to law school because that seemed like sort of the next thing to do. I had no ambitions to be a writer. I'd gone to the theater my whole life. It was a very important part of my life. Um, but I'd always simply see myself as, a, as an audience member. Um, so I arrived at law school. I was at law school for the full three years, passed the bar, thank you very much. Um, and I, law school itself, I found uh, fascinating. I was there at a really interesting time. I was at Yale in the early 70s. It's a small school. The Clintons were there. Bob Reich was there. Sam Alito was there. Clarence Thomas was there. It was a whole collection of people who were going to go on to become very prominent, but who, who 
uh, provided a kind of a real interesting cauldron of intellectual stuff going on. Um, so I liked the law school, but I had the obligatory summer job as an attorney uh, between my second, first and second year, second and third, I can't remember. It's the early 70s. There was a certain amount of marijuana was involved. And, uh, and I didn't, I just didn't, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to like this. I just don't think I'm going to enjoy being an attorney. Um, I didn't sort of enjoy the people I was with. I didn't like the work. So I went back to school and I thought, well, what can I do instead? And remember, this is still the 60s when it's like, you know, it was the 70s, but the 60s, nobody did much planning. You just kind of put one foot in front of the other and then responded to whatever you found there when you, when you put your foot down. And um, I thought, well, what do I like? And I thought, well, I like baseball and I like the theater. So... I wrote a letter to Bowie Kuhn, who was then the commissioner of baseball. I said, I'm a law student. Do you hire interns? I got a form letter back saying, we don't do that. And I wrote a letter to Hal Prince saying basically the same thing. You know, to, 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 do, you, do you hire interns? He said, no, we don't do that. But I have, in a PS, I had said, by the way, I said, I have an idea for a play I'd like to write about the opening Japan, about Commodore Perry's expedition to Japan, which I'd studied in college, which was a very exotic thing to do to study either Japan or China at that time. Really, now it's different. The letter I got back from the house said, no, we don't do interns, but your play sounds interesting. If you're in New York, come in and we'll talk about it. How, how was that guy and still is? He was totally open to other people. He was always interested in what young people were thinking about, um, people coming at him with different ideas from different directions. And so I arranged to be in New York in order to have that meeting. I didn't wait till it was, I happened to be in New York. I, I got in touch with this office and came in and, I, and we talked about the material. We talked about what had happened when Commodore Perry ships arrived off the coast of Japan, which had been closed to any interaction with the rest of the world for 250 years. And Hal was intrigued with the content but he also, I could tell immediately as we talked about it, that as a director, I mean, you could see what was going on behind his eyes, that the idea of experimenting with some kind of hybrid of American musical theater, the vividness of American musical theater technique with the equally vivid but very different style of kabuki theater in Japan interested him. And in fact, the first conversation, I was saying, well, I could come at the story this way, I could come at it that way. And he said, no, no, I said, I think in what you want, the story's really interesting if it's told from the Japanese point of view. And I said, you know what? You're right. That's, you're correct. So I went back to New Haven, um, and, uh, with a, with a one, with a contract. How got me like a one page, made a deal, a one page deal. You know? Right there. In his well, office. Well, I mean, maybe it was the second time we talked, or maybe it arrived in the mail, but he, you know, he, um, um, it was a low impact decision on his part, but it did mean that, you know, he, he was, he was, it meant he was, it meant two things. One, he was obviously interested and in whether or not this is something he did semi routinely or not, what it conveyed to me was that he really wanted to read it when it was finished as opposed to the two of us just having had a chat and him saying, yeah, so, you know, listen, when it's done, send it to me. And, if I remember we talked, I'll read it, you know. So I went back to Yale and I sat in the library and I wrote um, the first draft of a straight play called Pacific Overture and um, sent it to him and then waited for a long time because he was in, I think he was in rehearsal with a little night music. Um, and then I got a, you know, he got back in touch with me and um, 
He said, I'm really interested. He said, we should do a reading. You have to understand, I had never written anything for the theater before. I'd written a hasty pudding show with my roommate, Tim Krause, when I was at Harvard. But that was horsing around. This was something different. And so here I was all of a sudden having, you know, put words on paper with no training. I knew what a play looked like, where you type the name of the character who's going to speak in capital letters. And in those days, you would hit the return bar on the typewriter, and then you'd, you'd write what they were going to say, and then you hit the return bar twice and do it again. So I sent it down. We had a reading. And, um, of that very first draft. Uh, well, yeah, I probably worked on it a little bit. I probably had a couple of meetings with him, but basically the first draft. Um, and uh, he was he wanted to go forward, wanted to go ahead. So I'm in New Haven, and I'm coming. I'm taking the train into New York for auditions. And I mean, this was like... Are you still in law school at the time? Yeah, yeah. I was, this is my third year in law school. And I mean, this was in... No one else in my class was having a similar experience. Let me put it that way. Okay. No one else in your class or at law school since has had that experience. Right. And probably if you checked the law schools up down the East Coast and the West Coast, you still wouldn't have found anybody having similar experience. So um, I'm trying to... I'm managing this as best I can. Um, you know, it's like, okay, um, if I just, if I show up and I don't fall over, hang on to Hal's belt, I'm going to get pulled through this extraordinary experience. And so we were casting it, and then one day I got a call from Hal and said, um, you know, he said, Boris Aronson is supposed to design it, and he said he can't see it. He can't see, and, and you know what? I think the reason is it wants to be musical. And I, I, what I heard was, I'm not doing your play. I didn't hear, I am doing a musical. But, you know, that was okay. I'd had this, this fascinating experience. And then, he, you know, he, he, Steve Sondheim was kind of reluctant. Well, it feels like a play with music. But Hal is very good at persuading people to do what he'd like them to do. And eventually Steve, you know, pivoted into the project. And then we, we went to work. And, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, was crazy. I had been a huge fan of the shows that Hal and Steve had written, like up until a Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I was their collaborator. So, um, do you remember the first meeting? Like you walking in the room with Hal and Steve there, and I remember the first meeting with Hal. Um, I mean that because that was um, astonishing to me. I mean, I had, you know, my dad was a novelist, and he had worked in the theater for three or four years. So I I had met Hal when I was a little kid. Um, so, um, you know, I walked, I walked into Bowie Kuhn's office and, and, you know, Joe DiMaggio had been there. That probably would have been more uh, exhilarating for me. But, but to walk in a house office as a, an artist who he might be interested in working with, that was amazing. And then things just got added. Steve got added. Boris got added. You know, and it, 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 it grew from there. But it was, it was something. And, um, you know, again, I, it's my feeling was, okay. If I if I pay attention, kind of do what I'm told, stay very alert to what the issues are. Um, this um, I'm in the right place with the right people. It's all going to be great. And so everybody liked the show in rehearsal. And we got to Boston, and uh, it was very clear at the end of the first preview that the show had problems. Right? And it was very clear when Kevin Kelly's review came out in the Globe, a review of which I have not completely read from beginning to end even now. It was clear that the show had issues. And so instead of it being kind of a walk in the woods, all of a sudden it was like all hands out there going to fix this. And Hal was really it was so impressive in terms of 
you know, figuring out what needed to be done, staying calm, giving people different assignments. And so, you know, I had this sort of the exhilarating experience of, hey, I'm doing a Prince Sondheim musical. And then the more difficult experience of I'm doing a musical that's in trouble. And then the satisfying experience of what the finished product was. Do you re- so here you are, this rookie collaborator with these two... A baseball gi- term. Right. They're unavoidable. Use that just Absolutely. for you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, with these two giants... And I think, look, one of the hardest things that we all know about the business is that it is so incredibly collaborative and you have to like balance the, oh, I want to listen to my collaborators, but stand up for my own work. Do you remember a moment in that collaboration where you, as this rookie, had to stand up to Steve and Hal and be like, no, this, this, I really believe. How did you do that? Well, um, I mostly did it by not doing it. And I don't mean that I backed off, uh, things that I felt were right, that were going wrong. But I had enormous confidence in their um, experience and their sense of stagecraft, which I didn't have. And because the way it started was one of those shows where Hal, as the producer-director, was sort of the hub of a wheel. Um, And we were all collaborating with each other, but things tended to go... I spent a lot of time sitting around with Steve when Hal was in the room, but things tended to pass through Hal. Um, when Steve and I wrote Assassins later on, the two of us just went in a room and didn't talk to anybody until we had a finished piece of work. But I mean, to go back to your question, I, you know, the, the, the one thing that I occasionally felt was that we were playing a little fast and loose with, we were being a little inaccurate when it was convenient about the facts of what had actually happened, what was going on in Japan and what was happening. Uh, what happened in Japan as a result of the Americans' arrival. And I would raise that from time to time. But I remember Hal saying to me once, he said, John, he said, we're not writing a history book, we're doing a musical. And it was like, it was like, oh, I get it, you know. And so that's, that was the only place, and I wouldn't even describe it as conflict, but it, that was the one place where I tended to come at the material with a certain kind of baggage that the other guys did. But there was never a moment where I thought, I know what's right. They're wrong. How do I stand up to these two giants? They're, they're two hugely collaborative guys. Um, you know, as I discovered in working with Steve later on, there's no better collaborator than Steve. So you brought up Assassins. Can we talk about that a bit? That origin of that idea, where did that come from? It, You know, I had gone to Steve. Steve and I wanted to work together. I was thinking about this the other day because I'd gone to him with an idea for a, a totally idea, a totally different idea for a totally different show. And um, it was right after Anything Goes, for which I wrote the new book with Tim Krause that opened at Lincoln Center. And I thought, okay, I've got this hit, hit show. And what do you do when you have a hit show? You should take advantage of the opportunity to immediately see if you can dive into the next, the next thing. And I went to Steve with an idea for a show, which I would still like to write about the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. And he said, nah, it feels like a movie. And he said, what do you think of this? Assassins. And I said, um, could you say some more? <laughs> and it turned out that Steve had written, uh, not written, but he had, he had read when he was a juror for a musical theater competition, um, uh, a musical that a guy named Charlie Gilbert had submitted to this contest uh, called Assassins which was about a, a kind of a shadowy conspiracy in which a guy who returned from Vietnam was being recruited to shoot the president. It had nothing to do with what Steve and I would later 
right. But what Steve remembered was that there were occasional appearances in the piece by assassins from American history. Booth would appear and have a couple of things to say. Uh, Charles Guiteau would appear and have a couple of things to say. And he was interested in the characters. And so without any, this is like the best kind of collaborative experience you could possibly have, without any real uh, topic sentence which described what we were setting out to create or write, um, we started to get together once a week and just talk about these personalities, um, all of whom, as Steve said, you know, had built into their lives the advantage of an enormously dramatic and explosive conclusion to those lives. And after, as the conversations proceeded, I realized, oh, I know I'm interested in this. I was in high school when Kennedy was shot, and it was the first really major experience of loss that I had had. It's hard for people now who aren't there to actually appreciate what that whole Camelot stuff was like, especially if you were a kid. And two friends of mine and I went down to Washington and stood on the sidewalk and watched the funeral cortege. And on some level, Kennedy's assassin had, assassination had never made sense to me. I mean, the grief and the pain that had been created by this one angry man in a T-shirt with a rifle in Dallas. And the you know, subsequent, you know, it was the Cubans, it was Johnson, it was the CIA. None of that seemed to me to be, to make any difference, really. And as Steve and I gathered these characters together in our conversation, I thought, you know what, I wonder if, even though they all articulated totally different reasons for doing what they did, is there some common grievance that would emerge if you pushed them together and made them interact with each other? common grievance that would provide some kind of useful explanation, at least one that could be discussed, for what happened in Dallas in 1963. And so that's where the show came from. It's why it's structured the way it is. It's why, it's why the people who are in it are in it, the people who aren't in it aren't in it. But that's, it was, you know, Ken, it was the, that really satisfying experience of, um, of landing on a very, very personal piece of writing that came from a very personal place. And although Steve's investment in the Kennedy assassination was not as deep or as emotional as mine, he had shared the experience the way I had. And so we just, we went and um, we kept talking it back and forth, talking it back and forth. And, um, you know, it's the most personal thing I've ever written and the thing of which I'm most proud in part for that reason. There are very few people who could take that subject matter and turn it into the, the masterful piece of art and theater that it is. Do you think every idea can be a musical if the craftspeople are good enough? Or are some things not, don't touch that? I think that, um, you know, having written that show, um, the, um, my first answer would be yes. I, I might begin to qualify it slightly, but I think that, um, you know, when the show first opened at Playwrights Horizons, uh, people hated it. I mean, the critics, now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the, the reviews tend to be, you know, all positive, but people understand it, even if they don't love it. Um, but people, uh, critics and also a large segment of the audience rejected the piece because they felt there was something inherently frivolous about treating material that serious in the musical theater. 
as if the, the, the fact of its being a musical meant that we weren't taking it seriously. And I didn't, I, I, it, it, to me, what the musical theater provides is a, is a larger bag of tools for, what, uh, for the work that any playwright does, but just an expanded bag of tools in order to make decisions about how to most powerfully deliver the story that you want to tell. So no, I don't think there's anything that's off limits. I think that people do have a certain set of expectations of what a musical is going to deliver and that you should be conscious of that when you decide what you're going to devote the next eight years of your life to, um, depending on what your ambitions are for whether the ambitions are essentially or, or exclusively commercial or if they're, they're, they're not, if they're a mix of other things. But no, I, I don't, I don't, if you can write a play, Macbeth is pretty heavy stuff, right? Um, but it's a great play. And, uh, if Shakespeare, if Steve Sondheim had been hanging around Stratford on Avon, uh, I'm not sure that Shakespeare might not have thought, you know what? I could do this one better with songs. Because they all have songs in them, right? I'm drifting away from your question. But you mentioned that musicals have to deliver a certain something to an audience. What what are those things? What what are, what are the things we expect from a musical that you think are necessary? Well, I think it's, I think there uh, there are different answers to that, and and I think there's sort of there there um, where the show is appearing. That that a, a Broadway musical creates a certain set of expectations in the audience. Uh, a musical at the Atlantic Theater Company or at the Goodman uh, creates a different set of expectations in the audience. And so, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's very important where people are sensitive to where their work first appears. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, Once on this Island, which I, I love this production, and I really mm, love you. it. But Leonard, Stephen, and I have been friends forever because Assassins and Once on this Island were part of that same first season at, at Playwrights. I think we came after that. But um, one of the things I love about that production is I feel like it was very artfully placed in the right theater, in the right place, so it could find an audience on Broadway that was probably also maybe the next night going to go see Mean Girls, but would go down that elevator into that theater and expect something different to happen. And um, so, you know, what do people expect from a musical? I think it it de- a lot of it depends on you know the kinds of musicals they've seen in the past. I mean, I grew up seeing you know Cabaret and and Company and and Follies, along with Oklahoma. But if you if you you know coming out of the Winter Garden having seen Follies, and the idea of what could happen when you were having a musical theater experience was was different from what. Your expectation would have been if you had just seen Hello Dolly and and how to succeed in business without really trying. It shows I like it's I'm not it's not about good or bad, it's about difference. I go back to your saying I didn't have any training, I didn't know what I was doing, I just wrote this play. How much did that help you in allowing you to not be locked into some form or formula because obviously you, you did you wrote the revised book to anything goes very conventional right but you also wrote assassins which right. is a very unconventional structure do you think that was an advantage never having a playwriting one-on-one class? i think that when i um I, I don't recommend that people go to yale law school it's the 
first step as a way of creating theater, a, a career in the musical theater. But I think that it was helpful for me. In other words, I, I mean, I, whatever I had absorbed as a result of the, the hundreds of performances I'd seen in theaters, mostly around New York when I was a kid, um, probably was churning around someplace in my head and had some impact on the way in which I put things down on paper. Um, but I hadn't had, uh, I didn't, I was, I didn't approach either the straight play or, or the musical, or in particular the musicals, for the best way to think about it, with, with any kind of set of BMI workshop rules about where the I want song goes and what the opening number is supposed to accomplish. And what it was just, it was just, let's see what feels like the most effective way to get from A to B to C to D, to hold on to, to tell people what they need to know when they need to know it, and try and hang on, hang on to them as as the story progresses. I don't mean that those rules aren't valuable, but it, um, you know, I mean, Assassins is an interesting example because it, it, you know, form really does follow content sometimes, and in that case, um, the structure of the show is driven entirely by what we were writing about and the point we wanted to make about what we were writing. I mean, the conventional wisdom about people who shot the president when Steve and I were writing a piece was that they had nothing to do with each other and certainly nothing to do with the rest of us. They were freaks. So if the president had been struck by lightning or hit by a bus. And um, so the opening number pulls them together like that. They're a group of disparate loners who have nothing to do with each other. But then by kind of interacting with each other and crashing into each other, in a series of scenes that were very deliberately organized to let that happen, they arrive at a point where they go, hey, you know what? You're a little bit like me, and I'm a little bit like you. And then they sing a song and drive the ballad off stage, and then they sort of spit on their hands and go to Dallas. So that the structure of the piece is driven entirely by the idea that we were trying to deliver um, during the course of the piece. For that reason, the structure of the piece has nothing to say to anybody else about how to structure a musical. I mean, it just it, it, it doesn't. Um, um, but it, but it, on the other hand, it, it, what it does have to say is that don't feel constrained by what looks like a series of bases you have to touch or beats you have to hit at certain moments in order to, to deliver what people will recognize and, and experience as a satisfying musical. It doesn't, you know, the fact that, that Tony Shalhoub won the Tony for Best Performance by Lee Acker and he sings half a song is, again, it seems to me a reflection of the fact that um, what works works regardless of how it's assembled. And what doesn't work doesn't work, even if it's assembled according to, you know. I love Jack Fertel's book. Jack's a friend, um, but you could open the book and go, "Okay, I got to do this here and this here and this here," and it could be great or it could not be. You know, you just don't know. What is your specific writing process? You are an outline guy. Do you just free? What's I I um, feel uh, since I'm saturated with anxiety in all aspects of my life. I try and I try and control it as much as possible when I'm writing, and so for me that requires that I kind of know where I'm going to end up when I start, 
And because I, you know, because I work collaboratively, as opposed to sitting down in a room by myself, my and I feel this is actually is the is the best way. This is the way all musicals should be written. The collaborators should get together and talk until they've exhausted each other, but until they really realize, or really feel like they're all on the same page, and they all understand that they're going to write the same show. And then there's a point where it's embarrassing that you're still talking and not writing, and then everybody has to go off and do their part. But I do think that that's if you if that, that I find that soothing because I know now I know we're all doing the same thing, and it'll evolve, it'll change. It's not as if it's people are now it's not paint by numbers. Things can change dramatically as you work on it. But I like to have that sense of shape. Not all shows can be successful. You've talked about shows I've gotten. Not all, not all shows can be successful. What happens when something that you've done doesn't get the response from an audience or from critics that you had hoped? Do you, does the anxiety take over then? Do you hide in a shell? Do you brush it off? How um, do you deal with it? As best I can is the answer. Usually um, revisiting a therapist is part of the process. Um, it's difficult. I, I think that if you, I think if you've, if you've written something and you're really satisfied with it, then a negative reception is one thing. If you've written something and you weren't that invested in it, you were doing it for a variety of different reasons other than just pure authorial reasons. It seemed like a good commercial choice. And then if it's if it's if the answer is no, if it's rejected. Then you're not left with much except unhappiness. It seems to me, you know, the, the night Assassins opened it at Playwrights Horizons, a bunch of us went out to have drinks afterwards, and my my lawyer, a terrific guy, said, said I, "I think I'm going to go out to the New York Times." And I said, "You know what?" I said, "This is the healthiest thing I've ever said." But you know what? Don't. I said, "Let's let tonight really be a satisfying celebration of what we all feel we created." And We'll turn the page to deal with that in the morning. And I went home and I got a good night's sleep. And I and I woke up. My wife had gotten up before me and I walked in the kitchen. She had the Times and the Times in front of her. And she lowered the Times just enough so I could see her eyes over the top. And I thought, okay, here we go. But Steve and I, you know, we would get asked by different directors about doing revivals. And frequently by the second meeting, the director would say, it didn't work. I want to pull it apart and put it back together again. And Joe Mantello was really the, the I mean, who I admired enormously. He said, no, no, I just want to do the show. And we had been able to hang on to our confidence that we had written the show we wanted to write uh, in the face of some pretty negative criticism. Well, it was done in London the next year by Sam Mendes, and I loved it over there. But um, it's hard. It's, it's I, you know, it so much time and, and so much effort goes into creating these things. And you're so exposed. You know, it's not... I mean, maybe novelists feel the same way. Maybe painters feel the same way. But, you know, um, we have audiences. You know, 1,400 people come in and, and and they don't laugh at a joke. Or, they, or they're shuffling their playbills. You know, or a bunch of them don't come back in after intermission. That's hard. That kind of rejection is hard. Yeah, novelist isn't sitting there while you read it. No. Listen, you put it down or fall yeah, asleep while, you, while you're reading it. Exactly, <laughs> saying thirty pages is enough, man. I've had, yeah, 
What do you think of the current state of musical theater right now when you go out and see new shows, whether it's off-Broadway, reading stuff? How do you think uh, the art form is doing? I think it's, you know, it... it um, I think it's, I was going to say it's in a sort of a transitional phase, but it's always been in a transition phase, right? Um, uh, I was in a house office once way back when we were working on, I guess, Pacific Overtures, and somebody called him up and he said, nah, I don't think so. So what was that about? He said, they want me to come down and pick it outside the Morasco Theater because they're going to tear it down and build a hotel. And I said, I wasn't going to do it. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, the theater changes, the theater moves. For a while, it was, it was all on 14th Street. Now it's on 44th Street. It'll be someplace else. And I think that's true of, of musicals as well. I mean, I think that, I, I do think that, you know, the, the I guess really, the, I mean, the two shows that I find most interesting that are on Broadway now, um, Hamilton and uh, The Band's Visit, all had to migrate here from elsewhere. There are exceptions like the revival of Once on this Island, but that sort of migrated here from, from you know, from elsewhere. I, I, you know, I think that I want to be careful because I wish I had specific titles I could cite, but I, I, I do feel that there is a home for adventurous and interesting work. It tends to be in not-for-profit theaters, uh, not-for-profits around New York and also around the country, um, but that 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 work can then move into this very commercial area, which we are sitting in the middle of. Um, but that my expectation of seeing something that's going to make me sit up and go, wow, is lower now. Uh, you know, uh, on 44th Street and 45th Street than it would have been certainly 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. You know, I mean, it was... Pacific Overtures opened at the Winter Garden. Um, course Line was uh, it opened downtown. The public, and I remember Steve uh, was interviewed and he said, you know, he said, yeah, he said, it's great that the Course Line is being done in a not-for-profit place, but, you know, he's, he's congratulating his friend, Hal, and saying, but, you know, to take an unusual piece of work like this and put it on a commercial stage is um, takes nerve. And um, it took nerve then. Now it would it wouldn't happen. A show like Pacific Overtures starting at the Winter Garden Theater is an, impos- is an impossibility. Um, and that does mark, a, I think, a diminution in the kind of experimentation that you can expect in these buildings, which doesn't mean there aren't great things to see here, but particularly with musicals, I think the, the best stuff starts elsewhere, sometimes stays elsewhere, but if it gets here, it's because it's traveled. What do you think is the greatest mistake that new writers or writers in general make when crafting a musical these days, when you're reading something or seeing something from an emerging writer or even a veteran? Um, it's hard to answer. I, I think that, you know, you, you use the word craft, right? And creating musicals on one level is a craft. I mean, there, you know, Tommy Ann, who was a friend of mine, was a was an extraordinary craftsman. I mean, he could take virtually any subject and he could adapt it into a musical theater form because he he really knew how how an audience what an audience needed and when they needed it, and he made sure as the book writer that that, that was happening. I my my own feeling is that people who write musicals should 
to the extent that they can, approach them the way a playwright approaches a play. What do I need to write about? What is it I need to write about? Not what will work, not what do I need to write about? And will music and movement enhance my ability to affect an audience? And that's where I feel like the best, you know, the best work comes from. I mean, when Lin-Manuel Miranda picks up Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, at the end of the third chapter goes, my God, this guy's Biggie Smalls. This guy's, you know, and, I, and Lin told me that he, he actually Googled Alexander Hamilton hip-hop musicals because he couldn't believe he was the first guy to have this, this inspiration. That's where great musicals come from, I think. Not, I mean, and I do mean great musicals. There are spectacularly accomplished musicals that are done by real pros who know what they're doing that can be hugely satisfying experiences. But the stuff that sort of changes your, spins your head around and can change your life is something like Hamilton. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. (laughs) I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. From 42nd Street? Yes. Okay. That genie and says, I want to thank you for your contributions to the American Musical Theater and grant you one wish. What's the one thing that frustrates you the most about Broadway? One thing that really gets you angry and upset that you would wish this genie to change in an instant? I, I would wish that there was a way to... to I, I believe that the, that the audience um, inside this piece of Broadway real estate has been... I think this is not based on any kind of inside knowledge, but that the audience has been shaped and developed um, uh, by the fundamentally by the producing community in order to expect a certain kind of show. And that as a result of that, other kinds of shows don't satisfy this audience's expectations. And so they won't get produced. And I think given the amount of real estate that's here, um, given the number of theaters that are here, I know it's how how hard it is to find one and have a new show, but given given this, the number of stages that are here, I wish they were more welcoming of the kind of work, the kind of work that has to fight to get on those stages. A good dream for for all of us <laughs> with the number of theaters as limited as they are oh and God. growing even more limited. I, the more hits we put on, the no, less theaters we it have. No, it is. It's you know when. Um, but I remember having this conversation with Peter Stone. So it's like, a, you know, well, when Fiorello, which my dad wrote, 1959, big hit, uh, ran for, I think, two, maybe three years, which was, and the third year was like, but that was, you know, and it was at the Broadhurst, which meant, okay, the Broadhurst is, is unavailable for two years, but two years is nothing. But, you know, when Harry Potter, I liked Harry Potter. That's not what it's about. But it's like Harry Potter's, that's that theater's gone. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.